Hi, welcome to the Biffa Podcast, the show from the British Independent Film Awards that brings together two artists from the filmmaking community for a conversation about how film has shaped their lives. For this episode, the multi-talented duo of Craig Roberts and Simon Farnaby got together for a chat about the cinema experiences that made them and how those experiences informed their recent collaboration, The Phantom of the Open, the story of an amateur golf fanatic who manages to wangle his way into the biggest golf tournament in Britain. Since appearing as Oliver Tate in 2010's Submarine, Craig has gone on to appear in loads of TV and films, including Bad Neighbours, 22 Jump Street, and The Fundamentals of Caring. But he's also moved behind the camera. The Phantom of the Open is his third feature at the helm, after directing dark comedies Just Jim and Eternal Beauty in the last few years. His latest is written by Simon Farnaby, whose unmistakable comedy performances have seen him appear in Horrible Histories, Ghosts, Yonderland, and loads more. And his skills as a writer can be seen in recent British comedy favourites, Mindhorn and Paddington 2. In this conversation, Craig and Simon look back at the marvel that is Christopher Reeve's Superman, how Superbad informed Submarine, and they have a big, licorice pizza-inspired love-in on the works of Paul Thomas Anderson. Hi, Craig. Hi, Simon. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. How are you? Been a while. No, it's been a while. We've got a film coming out soon, but we're here to talk about the cinema in general, aren't we? So we'll, should we get to that later? Yeah, well, actually, it was released today. It's the 18th of March that it's out, the film. Today, they put the announcement out on the really? social media. Yeah, on, on you, the social. You've heard that. Why am I yeah. the last person to hear everything? How active are you on social media? Currently, my Twitter is down. <laughs> because I said some things I shouldn't have said. No, that's not true. No. It won't let me log in for some reason. I'll have to have a word with it. But thanks for that information. You hit it here first. <laughs> Live on this podcast. That's really exciting. Great. So what was your first cinema experience? I was trying to think what yours might be. You're from rural Wales, aren't you? Yeah, my first film... Well, weirdly, my first film I ever saw was... Not in the cinema, but I'll get to the cinema in a second. Was Rover Dangerfield? Do you remember that film? Rover Dangerfield. Yeah, it was Rodney Dangerfield, and he played a dog that was a family dog that they threw out. So he went to Las Vegas to make it as an actor. The dog did it. So if you've not seen it, maybe watch it. It was life changing. I am going to watch that because I'm a big fan of Rodney Dangerfield and one of my favorite comedy films, Caddyshack. Obviously, stars. Dangerfield. It's a Disney film. I know, maybe it's not a Disney film. That might be wrong, but it's. It felt like. I mean, the animation's okay in it. But the first cinema. So the first cinema I went to. I wish I had like a cinema parody, so romantic story about it. But I, it was a showcase cinema, the chain of cinemas that was in a place called Nankaru, which is in the valleys of Wales, and had those terrible multicolored carpets, that. And now probably hip, but like at the time they were terrible. So that was the first one and probably going to see, I really can't remember early, early, but I do remember watching all the Lord of the Rings there. Yeah, because you're quite a bit younger than me, aren't you? That's the other thing I was thinking, like, what are you, 30 or something? 31, yeah. So nearly 20 years younger than me. What was yours? I was born in Darlington in the northeast. There was a cinema there called the ABC Cinema on North Road. And I actually just looked it up just before this chat, and it is still there. And I went to see Greece live in the, well, not live in the cinema, but, you know, <laughs> in the cinema. <laughs> and I have a really strange memory. When I realised that, I was really into John Travolta. I love John Travolta. I thought he was great. And Olivia Newton-John, but I was sort of mm-hmm. not quite, I was a bit confused by her, you know, at that age. 
must have been about eight or something. A really strange memory was triggered because I, I loved Greece and then I wanted to see what I heard or misheard was the sequel to Greece, which is Saturday Night Fever. Right? Oh, okay. Yeah. But, but that is not the sequel to Greece. <laughs> <laughs> we had this neighbor who was about 17 and she would take us to the cinema. And I made her take me and I was really, well, I went, what the, where's the jokes? It's all very dark. People are drinking booze. And I was like, no, this is not, this, I've gone off Greece, this franchise. But it wasn't at all. I think it was just John Travolta dancing. So how old are you watching Saturday Night Fever? Um, it was only about a year later. Saturday Night Fever was after Greece. He was a bit more grown up, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so about nine, ten. I don't know how they let me in. It's probably a 15 or something. Anyway, it was in Darlington. And I saw films like you, like dog films. Digby, the biggest dog in the world, I remember seeing. All the Herbie films I thought were amazing. How often did you go to the cinema? I think it was it was very regular. Like, it was a very normal thing. Yeah. I felt like it was once a week for a while, but probably wasn't. Probably like once every two weeks or a month or something. What about you? It was the only cinema, really, that was near us. And there was a bowling alley next to it. So it was like the date spot through, like, your teenage years and place I'd go with my friends and stuff. So we went for, yeah, we went quite a lot. I remember seeing, I think, one of my favourite, definitely the, the best film I saw there while I was going was Superbad. I remember seeing Superbad there and it just my mind was blown. Oh, brilliant. Superbad. Superbad, yeah, the, the Rogan the Rogan picture, yeah, which yeah, to, yeah. to be fair, I studied the hell out of that film. I wanted to be Michael Cera after that movie. I just thought he was so, so good in it. The first thing I did, Submarine, you can basically see that in the performance. I basically just copied Superbad, is what it feels like. Just Michael oh, really? Cera and Superbad. Yeah, well, he's just so good. He was just so deadpan. And when Richard was prepping for the film, his references weren't Superbad or Michael Cera. They were like The Graduate and Harold and Maud and stuff like that. That deadpan angst, which I felt was perfect. But to you, it was... Michael Sarah, did you tell Richard this, or did you just let him think that you were that you'd seen Harold and Maud? Well, I, I watched all those films, but yeah, no, he knew because I think he knew him, and also there was a running joke that if I didn't deliver every day, Michael Sarah would come in and replace me to do it. Is what Richard kept saying. <laughs> He's quite a cruel man, isn't he? His sense of humour is very cruel. Just a terrible human. <laughs> just an awful person. Just the worst. Which I, I would have loved to have seen Michael in there, to be honest. But yeah, Superbad was definitely one of my favourite. And also, to be honest, the one moment I can remember that my hairs were standing up and I was like, oh my God, this is incredible, was Heath Ledger in the role of the Joker. Because I remember there was just so much talk around that and there weren't much put out in terms of trailers and clips and stuff. And I remember that the way they built it up in the first 10 minutes of his people robbing the bank. And he just, there's this shot that just where he pushes into the back of Ledger and he's holding the mask and then the, the truck turns up and he gets in. I was just like, wow. I, I, went, I went back to watch that movie so many times when it was there. He's amazing in it. Yeah. Repeat viewings. That's what I do remember that as, as a kid. It's funny because when you said super bad, I thought you said Superman. Superman. And, uh, <laughs> because I went to see Christopher Reeve in Superman, the first one. I must have been nine or ten. And of course, that blew my mind because there wasn't even this slew of superhero movies. That was like, whoa, this guy can fly. What the hell? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> no one really knew how he did it. And it wasn't really, it just wasn't a staple at that point. So it was really exciting. And then, of course, there was Superman 2. 
which I still think is one of the most perfect films structure-wise. I think it's it's amazing. And he sort of loses his powers and it's all very grand and it's stakes and stuff. And the three baddies are amazing with Terence Stamp. I need to revisit that. Yeah, I can't, I can't really remember it. Oh, two. Yeah, two is amazing. It's the one where he goes into the cafe. There's a really big scene and he gives up his powers so he can be with Lois Lane. And he's a human. So right. he can bleed. And he, and he goes into this cafe and there's this thug sitting at the counter and... Christopher Reeve goes to the toilet and he comes back and this thug is sitting on his seat and he says, excuse me, that's my seat. And the thug goes, what are you going to do about it? And then he punches Christopher Reeve and he starts bleeding. He says, oh my God, I'm bleeding. It's blood. And everyone's going, who is this weakling, man? And then, of course, then he realises, he sees the baddies on the telly and he realises he's got to go and somehow reverse this thing he's done and get his powers back. And then right at the end of the film, he comes back into the cafe and there's the same bully guy in there. He goes, excuse me, you're sitting in my seat. And he goes, get out of here. And then he he sort of picks him up by his scruff and neck and throws him across the bar into this pinball machine. And everyone looks at him and goes, <laughs> wow, what happened to this weak guy? And he goes, I've been uh, I've been working out. <laughs> and there was the biggest roar in the cinema, I remember. It was a really full cinema because everyone was really excited, like the sequel to this great film. And everyone was just howling. And then the credits rolled and everyone went, that was like the best film I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I remember, to, to be honest, that's super, I mean, we won't get into the superhero thing because that seems like a, a big thing to open up, but I definitely, like when I look at the Batmans, I think I definitely prefer like Burton's Batman. I think they're very serious now. They're all very serious. To Nolan's. Yeah, I mean, Nolan's Batmans are obviously, the way they're made is just, it's incredible, but I like Arnie as the Iceman. I actually watched that over Christmas, and I think it's got three out of ten on IMDb. But a great movie. Just I couldn't stop laughing. Danny DeVito was the Penguin. Yeah, he's the Penguin, and then it was Jim Carrey as the Riddler. Were there cinemas full? Do you remember moments where you were glad it was full and there was people either laughing or stunned? Usually, I sort of don't want people there in the cinema, but there have been a few occasions where I go, oh, "I'm glad people are here." I think I saw Airplane in the cinema and everyone was just killing themselves. I suppose the viewing I remember where it was packed and I remember it mainly because people walked out was Borat. That's a great movie to watch with people because everybody's extremely uncomfortable. That was a good experience. They were certainly packed. It was the only cinema. The other place was Cardiff and we, you know people really didn't want to trek that far. So yeah, when, when it was like Lord of the Rings, horror movies, horror movies I love watching with an audience. Definitely. I've never been a big horror movie. I don't think I've even been to the cinema to see a horror movie. My brother was two years older than me and really into cinema, and I think really got me into cinema. And, and he used to get pirate videos from Mr. Video in Darlington, yeah. which I don't think is there anymore. I remember one was American Wheel in London, uh, yeah, and I saw that too young. And it's an amazing I mean, it's still one of my favourite horrors, but... I think it put me off the genre because I was so frightened. <laughs> but it was funny as well. My horror movies have to be funny. I tried watching the Halloween ones recently with Danny McBride and David Gordon Green directing. Have you seen those? Yeah, I have seen them. Yeah, yeah. I went to the cinema to watch the first one. Oh, did you like that? I liked the first one, yeah. Yeah, I did like the first one, yeah. I mean, I love Halloween. Like, as soon as you kick in that theme music, I'm in. I'm absolutely in. Michael Myers. I mean, it's new to me that because I went, I never saw any of the other ones. And I thought, because David Gordon Green had done it, I thought I'd watch it. And then I go, who is this guy, Michael Myers? What? There's no, I mean, he's got this weird backstory, but he has no motivation. He's just pure evil. Is that the whole idea? 
He's pure evil, but he's super strong. He's like Reeves going back into that cafe at the end of the film. Like, he's just got all the strength. The best thing about it is just that he walks everywhere, but he's quicker than anybody. <laughs> it just makes no sense. <laughs> That's a very good point. He didn't run anywhere, does he? No, he, and it's not even a normal walk. It's a slow walk. He knows what he's doing. It's a slow walk, but yet he's around the corner before you get there. I like what they've done with it. I think they've done a good job. And it's just so interesting that those two would turn to horror. Yeah, picked up on that franchise. They were funny as well. They had good, funny teenager parts for the kids, which I thought was great. Well, he's great with that, David. David's great with young... Like, you look at George Washington and stuff like that. He actually directed me in, in a TV show called Red Oaks. He was one of the main directors on it, and I learned a lot from him, actually. He was so unpredictable. It would just get you to do random shit so you felt uncomfortable, and it kind of worked. <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't tell you that you're going to be replaced by Michael Sarah. No, no, no. <laughs> what about now? Do you have a cinema that you go to now? What's your favourite cinema right now? Well, my favourite cinema now is The Everyman in Hampstead because it's quite near my house. And I sort of got to know people there and they're really friendly and they've got really nice... Because it's quite an event now because I've got a kid. My cinema going, it has to be really well planned. Thinking about this conversation and about my cinema going life and remembering... I think I was a student in Dublin for a bit and and I just walked into a cinema and you know, I just went, I'm going to go and see whatever's on there. And it was Three Colours Red, Christoph Kieslowski. Love film. that. And I, was, I, I was really lucky because that's a, an amazing film. I didn't know anything about it. And I thought those days are over. Now it's planning, weeks in advance, babysitters. I go with my wife and we actually went to see West Side Story on Saturday. How was it? Yeah, it was good. I mean, it's very, I, I liked it actually. I did, I really did. I, I'd never seen it, the original before, and I didn't realise what a glum story it is. Right, yeah, yeah. I was sort of really in love with all these characters. Going, oh, he's great, and she's amazing. And they're in love, that's great. Oh, whoa, I, And then, <laughs> but I remembered that, I knew it was based on Romeo and Juliet, so I thought, this isn't going to go well. Right. Um, but I didn't quite know it was going to go that badly for them. But what was great was the food was great. They really nice prawns. <laughs> <laughs> they did have really proper and squid and they cook it all there. And I had an amazing, like the best hot dog I think I've ever had in my cinematic life. The Everyman's a proper experience though. That's like going to the theater. It feels like, you know, it's a proper sit. I mean, the, you fall, I could fall asleep in those chairs. They have the couches. Yeah. Right? And the chairs are really comfy, proper holders for cups. And, and they come in and give you your food and your drinks. So have you got one near you? I've, well, I'm trying to think what the nearest cinema to me is. The nearest would be, actually, yeah, Finsbury Park. Well, they've opened a picture house. The nearest Everyman would be probably Muswell Hill is the nearest one. Yeah. And that's great. My favourite cinema would be The Prince Charles. That's amazing. It's so good. Just the range of films you get there. It's just, it's incredible. And they've, they've also been super kind. I think I don't know if it was for Phantom. I think it may have been for Phantom, but they let us just test some of the film footage on their projector, which was really kind of them. It's a great cinema. I'm trying to think what the last thing I saw there was. We're hoping that we can do some kind of film print for Phantom so and have it have it just popping around the cinema. So it'd be great if we could go to the Prince Charles and they would play it. Yeah. What was the last good film you've seen? Licorice Pizza. Yes! I love <laughs> I've, I've seen it twice now. I've seen it twice too, yeah, yeah. And I'll tell you what I did. We'll get onto Licorice Pizza in a minute, but did I recall you saying you loved Phantom Thread? Absolutely, yeah. Right, yes, I was right. So last night, I went, I'm sure there's a film I'm, I should have seen of 
called Thomas Anderson. And I remember you'd recommend, I think, and I went, I think it was Cray. And I like your taste. So I went, I should watch that because I was in a Paul Thomas Anderson mood after seeing Licorice Pizza twice. <laughs> so I watched that last night, or I could only do about an hour and a bit till I had to go to bed because I'm old. But what a thing that, I mean, what a bizarre, his performance is sort of ludicrous. And you yeah, know, yeah. this kind of very precise thing. And I don't know why haven't I seen this before. You can feel the legend coming off the screen. Yeah, it's interesting. Like I love, I mean, I love PTA so much, so much. And it's incredible to see, I really love his earlier stuff, the kind of kinetic magnolia and where it feels like he's sprinting with a camera everywhere in, into everybody, which is like, I suppose, I don't know if you've seen Euphoria, but that's kind of what Euphoria is doing right now. It feel, Euphoria feels like early Scorsese slash Magnolia in the way that they're shooting it, which is great. It's cool to see. But it's interesting to see how he's like, I wouldn't say, you know, I wouldn't say calm down, but obviously decided to, I don't know, I suppose, remain more still and st- within his pictures. Like when you go to the master and then the progression of Phantom Thread, I was like, wow, I can't wait to see what he does next after. Wait, Fan- Phantom was his one before this, right? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. I was like, oh, what's he going to do after Phantom Thread? And then to see Inherent Vice, he's kind of like reinvented himself nine films in. It's just crazy. Very precise in his last pictures. And now it's this Casavetti style free improv love story. I know, going back to Phantom Thread after Licorice Pizza, you know, falling in love with that and then going, oh, so he did this before. I mean, it's just so different. Yeah. It's this really sort of anal guy making dresses and really fussy and not a lot goes on. This yeah. strange man, this weird relationship. And then Licorice Pizza is just this rolling sort of, everyone runs around the place. So much running in that film. It's a lot of running. <laughs> And then you've got these crazy, almost Coen Brothers like cameos. I don't know what you'd call them. Mm-hmm. From Sean Penn and who's your other guy? Bradley Cooper. Wow, what a thing that is! I love, I yeah. love every second of his the, performance. The Streisand, the Streisand bit. Like it just every, even on the second view, I was cracking up. Streisand. I think why I loved it as well so much, right? Is that well, a part of the reason why I loved it is that I loved Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I really loved Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And more than any other Tarantino film that exists, I thought Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was like the perfect Tarantino film. There's no better double bill than that. And and this, it feels like, you know, it's kind of meanders all over the place. And it's just little pockets of society. And you see little days in the lives of, of people. And it's cool to see. First time filmmaker trying to make that movie would be impossible because there's just, there is a lack of true story. But it's cool that they're at the level that they're at and they can make that. Yeah, it's funny. It, I did notice it's a similar territory. A lot of they're very different films, but that sort of 70s LA vibe. <laughs> I love that shot of Bradley Cooper when he he walks out of shot. He's got his gas and he walks out of shot. And then the camera just stays still and these two girls walk past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know the bit? I mean, with and he tennis comes back. gear on. And he comes back. The camera stays and he, and he comes back and goes... What's the line? Uh, you like peanut butter? He, he's like obsessed with women, isn't he? And he's got all these <laughs> chat-up lines. You like peanut butter? The two leads as well. Their first thing is just amazing. She's fantastic. She's fantastic in it. Obviously, Philip Seymour Hoffman's son, Cooper Hoffman, and he was such a favourite of mine throughout Big Lebowski and and then The Master, and and then to see his son being so. I mean, very different from him, but amazing. So small and quite a fearless, unvain performance, isn't it? Yeah, and charming. 
like when you don't yeah. expect it. I think also on the back of the Prince Charles, why I love them so much as well is that they do play a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson. Specifically, they, they play Punch Drunk Love a lot. And that for me is, in terms of cinema that like changed my life, it would be Punch Drunk Love. I remember. Oh, really? Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Again, it was during Submarine, uh, Richard was like, oh, you should just check this film out. And I remember putting it on. I was just like, I didn't know this is what cinema was really, to be honest. Yeah. Before that, I'd not really invested in it as much as I had. And that, just the way he, again, which is a nice, I suppose, nice way to bring Superman back. Adam Sandler's character is somebody that's suffering with social anxiety, but the dude is Superman. That's the crazy thing about the movie. He's essentially an alien that's been beamed down. And that's why he's so anxious. And I don't know if you've seen the, the videos breaking the movie down. I mean, I don't know if this is actually true. Mark Commode seems pretty convinced it is. But there's a video that shows you all the points within the movie that you can piece together that he's actually like Clark Kent or he's Superman. He's got crazy strength and he starts beating people up. And there's a moment where he's running really quick and he jumps and he does like a Superman dive. And then the obvious thing is he's wearing the blue suit. But then at the end of the movie, Emily Watson is wearing a, a red dress. And as he sat down playing the piano, she comes around, she puts her arms around his neck and it forms the cape over his blue suit. Oh, brilliant. Is this on YouTube, this thing? Yeah, you should, ch- you should check it out. And if anybody oh, hasn't definitely. seen it, definitely check it out. That That's when I was like, okay, so it can be many things. Like, it's not just what, what you see is what you get with film. You, I've fallen down the trap of The Shining and how many different meanings are in that. And it's hard to believe what's true in that anyway. But yeah, that was the movie that I was like, wow, okay. Yeah, it's an amazing film. It's a favourite of Paul King and I. We look at it quite a lot with various things we've done. But, but I wanted to talk about the superhero thing, because when I went to see Eternal Beauty, I think it was before I'd met you, or maybe I'd met you before then, I can't remember, but I loved Eternal Beauty. And, and you said in the Q&A afterwards that because Sally Hawkins played a woman who had schizophrenia, and you said it wasn't an illness, it was a superpower. <laughs> and I really liked that. And, and it was it's something you mentioned in Phantom of the Open as well, which we'll segue into. Yeah. It was just an interesting way of looking at your hero. Is that something you think about yeah well weirdly in phantom we definitely have superman colors as well we took those colors and there's actually really small easter eggs the number plate on the car in phantom as well. yeah it, it i think yeah it it says uh i forget what it says but i think it's i think it's, I think it's, I think it's isn't it jor-el isn't it his dad is i think it's the planet it's the planet he came from oh i think i think something like that with eternal beauty it was more about the idea of recasting someone's weakness as a strength and more about changing the lens of pitying or feeling sorry for people all the time. One thing that we faced when we were trying to make Eternal Beauty is the humor in it. We, if you find it humorous, but like when when we were trying to make the, the the movie, I wanted it to be funny and I wanted her to be funny, and they were like, yeah, we, you know, there were people that were just felt uncomfortable with there being humor in there because it was dealing with somebody with you know paranoid schizophrenia, which to me was just bonkers, completely bonkers. It didn't make any sense to me. Um, anybody and everybody can be funny and should be funny. I was just every time you see somebody that's got a mental health issue especially if it's a woman in a film, they're, they're possessed running down a corridor. Yeah, I was just totally against the idea of making anything like that. I just wanted it to be like a punch drunk or like a taxi driver or something that was just a little bit more first person and, and you, you being with them. And yes, when I read Phantom of the Open, that's one of the first things that jumped out to me because you had a scene that said Morris opens up his, his overalls uh, like Superman. And I was like, yes. <laughs> it all comes back to Superman. Yeah, it all comes it back was, to Superman. yeah, yeah. When you said that after Eternal Beauty, I thought, oh, I haven't thought about that before. But there it is in, in a film I'd already written. His superpower is his blind optimism, I suppose, or his... Uh... His confidence, yeah, 100%. His confidence. I think yeah, I think he's, he's he totally believes in himself in a world where people don't. 
in a world where people don't believe in themselves as well and also reflect that onto other people that they can't do something. I think that he's like, no, I absolutely can. Interesting. So when you're writing a script, and let's take Phantom as the example, are there movies you watch while writing a script? Yeah, there's things that I think about. I'm trying to think what they'd have been with Phantom of the Open. It was interesting watching Eddie the Eagle, actually. Because <laughs> that came out when I was writing Phantom of the Open. I was sort of rewriting it. And that right. was interesting because that's its own film, but I knew when I saw Eddie the Eagle what I didn't want it to be. Gotcha. That's no disrespect. That probably does sound very disrespectful to Eddie the Eagle, but when I was writing Phantom of the Open, I'd made some stuff up. Like I had a guy who tutored him who had one arm based on a guy who taught me golf who had one arm, and then it turned right. out that, that, that he'd never played golf before in his life. And I thought that was really funny, and I, and I wanted him to have someone who changed him because one of the challenges of Phantom of the Open is a guy who falls in love with golf, who's bad at it, and then sort of stays quite bad. And that's quite, a, it's, it's really yeah. ag- against the rules of film and that something's got to change. And I mean, he changes mentally and everyone around him changes, but he stayed sort of quite bad. So I went, oh, what if he had a tutor then? He gets a bit better. And then, so after I watched Eddie the Eagle, I, I thought, um, let's just go back to the story, the true story, and, and go, what happened? And, and the more I honed in on what actually happened, the more sense it made and the more it went away from that kind of Hollywoodized or British version of Hollywoodized Ed, Eddie the Eagle, which is getting Hugh Jackman in to play a quirky drunken. <laughs> so then I went, oh, I just want it to be itself. I mean, really, I did look to Ken Loach and Mike Lee and because it's a film about a working class guy, working class hero. So I looked at films that weren't funny at all. The Eric Cantona <laughs> one, you know, like, which is quite funny, actually. But Looking for Eric. Looking for Eric, yeah. And so, so I really wanted to get the flavour of, I mean, I'm from the north and fairly working class background and I've brought up around golf from the sort of lower echelon. So I knew a bit about it. I remember a, a producer when I was first trying to get it away going, it's like Caddyshack, isn't it? And I was going, no. It's not, it's not a great Caddyshack. <laughs> and when I met you, I mean, when I saw Eternal Beauty and I saw what you did with, yeah, you had humour, as you say, with, with a project that is usually treated without humour or very seriously. And I thought, this is perfect. And you got it straight away. You went, it's not like a crazy comedy at all. It should be pretty real because it's got fantasy sequences in it and stuff. And a guy who slightly thinks differently to everyone, it should reflect that. But And, and you basically shared my vision of it which is great it's really nice to have that coming together the one thing i kept thinking when we were making it just to make a family drama because it was going to be funny anyway it felt like if you lean into the idea that it's you know a drama about family and about support and love and how we treat the people around us then it's going to have the heart that it deserves and the heart was in there anyway rather than it just be a straight out comedy which it which it wasn't weirdly the film that came to me as soon as we as soon as i started reading it was king of comedy that was the big that was the one that stood out to me and and just how the humor in King of Comedy is really funny, but also sometimes it poses the question that you shouldn't be laughing at somebody. You should be laughing with them. <laughs> King of Comedy is a great reference. I mean, it's one of my favorite films. And, and you're right, it's got that somebody coming up against a wall of, like he's going, hey, I, I'm a funny guy, I can do comedy. And coming up against a wall of, what are you doing? You can't, you can't do this. <laughs> and that's very Flickcroft, you know. There's nothing more devastating than somebody saying I'm funny and them not being funny. That's ironically funny in itself. That's why it's so good. And that's why it, that's why it worked with this. I think 
more so with Phantom, you, you really are on his side because you know the machine he's going up against. We've all faced that machine many times during a Monday or a Tuesday or whatever. Like we've all gone against the system in some way. So I think that's what makes Morris so relatable and so lovable. Certainly with what, and it's interesting what you were saying with the Eddie the Eagle stuff. I think when it's made to be this bigger thing, then it feels more like a biopic or more of like an impression. Whereas, which is, wasn't what we were going for at all. You know, we wanted Mark to come in and do his own thing and for him to embody the, the spirit of Morris, but for, for it to really be his own thing. Yeah, that's that's a really good point because people knew the story, I suppose, didn't they, of Eddie the Eagle? Yeah. And it relied on that, whereas we didn't really have that. Not many people know the story of Morris Flickrock. It's very, very niche. I mean, I don't think, I don't think you'd even heard of it or, and your dad's a golfer and not many people know it. I read an obituary in The Guardian of this guy and I vaguely remembered him from when I was a junior golfer but nothing much was known Scott Murray and I who wrote the book Phantom of the Open we sort of did discover all the whole story ourselves in a way which is nice I suppose Eddie the Eagle if you wanted to know it and you've got to sift through it whereas we sort of discovered it all ourselves so and then you came along and gave us a visual you know, a vision to it and a tone to it that was perfect. So no one could really come in and go, oh, it wasn't like that. Or that wasn't my vision of what happened because no one knew it. <laughs> no one knew it. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's just got enough in the public. It was infamous in the 70s, but we could bring that whole story to people in, in a way that was our own in terms of my writing and your directing. So it was nice to be able to do that. And no one else to claim ownership over it, I suppose is what I'm saying. Like a true story, yeah. often you go, yeah, that's not our story, but we can go, well, this is our version. Weirdly, when we were filming it, the film that I kept watching all the time, and to be, to be honest, is that when I make anything, I watch it, it's Ben Stiller films. They're the ones to watch for me. I don't know why, I just they just make me feel really safe. Which ones? Uh, meet the Parents. Meet, to me, Meet the Parents is a perfect film. That's a perfect film. Um, I won't have anything bad said about that. Along Came Polly, old Ben Stiller movies just make me feel really safe. Before we wrap it up, Simon, let me ask you with the script, how much did it change during the process? Because obviously you were working on it for a while, Phantom. It was a while to get it together. I'm sure you weren't writing it all the time, but did it... Are there versions of the script that you're like, huh, does that still exist? Yeah, I think there's really bad versions before. It was the first screenplay I wrote, and then I wrote on the Paddington 1 and then Paddington 2, and then wrote Mindhorn. And then I went back to Phantom of the Open, having been through that. And yeah, it changed massively. I think the main thing you learn is brevity. <laughs> Even if something's funny, I think there was so many characters in it. When I look back, and obviously, like, like I say, I'd invented characters that didn't exist because I thought they'd be funny and it's just to populate it with funny characters. And I think I probably didn't trust that Morris would be funny or that that would be the spine. All I needed was that spine. And then I think, um, I mean, it changed twice, really, when you came along. Like, I think you had lots of thoughts. And I think bringing his wife into it much more into the fore, I think we, together, we sort of came up with all that stuff. And so, so really, it changed when I went back to it. Then it changed when you came along and I think had a great thoughts about the family, like you say, make it family film and bring Morris's wife to the fore and the kids and the dog. And really, that was, you know, and that was the spine. And Mike, obviously, is his other son. And and that changed hugely. And then when Mark Rylance came as well, you were there, Mark yeah. came. And he went, I've just got a few thoughts. And he had that, he had about six <laughs> markers on each, you know, on each page. And I thought, oh, here we go. 
Um, <laughs> and he had his thoughts and it was important to us that he was happy. And, and I think he just wanted to make sure we didn't want to make Caddyshack and that yeah. we were making a thoughtful and honest film. And then it changed again. So, so yeah, it's, it's, and also I've learned really to let go of almost everything, you know, you can't really hold on to anything because then you get to the edit. And then the edit was big as well, wasn't it? It was. A, that's um, the. I, I. I think that's hopefully the biggest edit I'll ever have to do. <laughs> <laughs> it was a long one. We had a lot of footage. To be fair, though, it was a lot. I think we cut out a whole movie. Like there was, there was. A, it was long. The first cut. The first cut was like five. It felt like four or five hours long. It wasn't that long, but it did feel very long. But it's all the better for it. And there's no more writing to be done because it is out in cinema, 18th of March. The writing's never over. Yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah, well, now I know it's the 18th of March, so I'm quite pleased about that. I'm going to go on social media now and try and... And cancel yourself and then start tweeting again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, hopefully they'll let me back in. I'm sure they will. It was great talking to you, man. Really, really good reconnecting. And I'll see you on the Junket Trail. Yeah, and at the Everyman Hampstead on the 18th of March. Wow, that would be nice. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Biffa Podcast. If you've just discovered us, subscribe now so you don't miss the next episode. And if you haven't already, take a look back at our old episodes, where you'll find the likes of Riz Ahmed, Nikolai Costa-Wildau, Wumi Masaku, and Buki Bakri, all taking a trip down cinema memory lane. Thanks for listening. The Biffa Podcast is a Little Dot Studios production for Biffa. It's hosted by me, Jake Cunningham, and I'm one of the producers as well, along with Harold McShiel and Ellie Aitken. The show is edited by Content is Queen.